Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is Guy Talk. That's how we're going to start. And then in hour two, Dr. Marcus Bachman will be joining me. We're going to talk about shame. But for now, we're very interested in getting your questions. Send them over. The text line is open, 877-933-2484. My power panel today is Jeff Verdorn, Pastor Tom Parrish, and not Joining us today is Justin Jepson because I didn't get his check in time. <laughs> oh. Whereas yours checks cleared. It's so in the you're mail, back. right? Yeah. That's it's what wonderful. he said. That's what he said. <laughs> but I said, I got to play hardball with you and not let Jan. No, he's got other plans. He'll be back next week. So, what I want to do, gentlemen, is I want to start with uh, Pastor Tom Parrish, if you wouldn't mind opening us in prayer. There are people today who are mourning people they've just lost, there's people dealing with illness and scary news. And there's people struggling with finances and relational issues. And I just want to commit this hour to the Lord, and I would love for you to open us in prayer. Glad to do it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know the depth of human need and sorrow. You know the pain that we go through. We've lost loved ones, Lord, and how devastating that is. We have bills we can't pay. We have diseases that seem to be running rampant in our bodies or in our family. We turn to you, Jesus, because ultimately— You promise in your word you will have the final say in all things. And whether we live or die in this world, you're going to be there for us and walk us into eternity. So, Lord, as we talk on the radio, be here. Speak to individual hearts. Whatever concerns we come with, Lord, whatever the listeners have, speak to them, Lord, and bring healing and hope as only you can, Jesus. Amen. 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 Thank you so much. Again. Pastor Tom Parrish, Jeff Verdorn, these guys know a lot. I bet they even know what kind of dog breed Snoopy is. A beagle. Beagle. Good job. See, this is how good these guys are. So all you have to do is text your question over, 877-933-2484. Did you know that uh, the secret to easing stress might be as simple as having dinner as a family? Wow, what a novel idea. Mm -hmm. You mean that's where where mom and dad and the kids sit down and... Eat and talk with one another about the day? The American Heart Association have found that 91% of parents notice their families are less stressed when they share meals together. And that's without their phone there on the table, right? Yeah, I would (laughs) hope so. I like it. Yeah. How about you guys, uh, family meals? Was it an important uh, important thing? We did. Growing up, we always had, my wife is a wonderful cook, and we always had a family meal at the table. Mm -hmm. And then you as a child family meals? Yes. In fact, I still remember to this day my mother having a deck of little cards that had Bible verses on them. Mm -hmm. And to start every meal, we would read a Bible verse and say grace. We did that too growing up. Uh, We always had meals together. My dad would get home at five o'clock. We'd eat at 530. My mom made me eat a lot of spam. (laughs) I thought that was wonderful. I thought it was a steak. But even now as an adult um, and with our sons when they're around and sometimes they live with us and they're out, we always have dinner together. And we enjoy doing that because it's a great time to talk. Mm -hmm. 
All right, let me uh, ask you this question. This is probably not answerable, but Lazarus is in the tomb four days. Why no questions to him about what happened during those four days? Were there no inquisitive Christian radio hosts back then? What was going on? Well, I'm sure somebody asked him some questions somewhere along the way, but the point was it wasn't enough to record in the Scriptures because the point of Lazarus rising from the dead was not about Lazarus. It was about Jesus, who had the power to bring him back from the dead. And that's what John 11 is about, and so that's where the focus is. And like you and uh, listeners, I would love to know what Lazarus had to say, but that's not for us to know right now. What we do know is that when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth— he is the resurrection, the life. He has the power to do it for Lazarus and for you and me. I I think that's probably right. It's just not recorded in Scripture. Someone, I'm sure, was curious. Man, Lazarus, what was it like, you know, to be dead for four days? But remember, many of the Jews, so the leadership of the Jews, they weren't impressed at all that Jesus had raised this, raised this guy from the dead. No. In fact, they didn't like it one little bit because they felt like, hey, this is a powerful sign and he's going to attract people to follow him. And so it actually says in scripture that they thought about killing Lazarus. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know, here's this Jesus guy. You raised him from the dead. We can't have that. So we better knock him off again and get rid of him so that he doesn't have that testimony to attract followers after himself. Mm-hmm. There was a first century writer named Papias, and he was a Christian. And he talked about the 500 people that rose from the dead when Jesus was crucified. And he has a whole almost a whole chapter talking about that, talking about how they went on to live their lives, how many of them lived a long time, how they were fervent witnesses to the power of Jesus and them rising from the dead. Now, I never grew up hearing that, but it is in the annals of the early church fathers, and it's worth looking at, and it's just fun to read. And whether it's fully accurate or not, it doesn't matter, but the truth is still there. Jesus has that power. Mm-hmm. Just one more word, you know, this is a powerful sign, by the way, that God, Jesus, has the power over the grave, over death, that he could raise it. And remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross. There's another group of people that came back to life, and that are what some call the Matthew 27 saints. It says that when at the moment of Jesus' death, graves were opened, and many people came out, and then it says after the resurrection, they came into the city, and I'm sure a lot of people asked them the same question. Hey, I just buried you a few days ago. How are you back? (laughs) And it's Mm -hmm. a testimony that God has the power over death. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Guy Talk, or Guys Who Talk, so send your questions over, please. 877-933-2484. I'd like to encourage people Uh, our listeners, gentlemen, to not try to handle a feel-bad truth on your own because the enemy will will turn truth against you. The enemy can use truth to destroy you. Absolutely. I think the greatest trick of Satan is isolation. You know, make us think that we got to figure this all out on our own, Mm -hmm. that if we don't figure it out, we're never really going to get an answer. And we're somehow... Some of these questions we think are embarrassing or they're so over the top. Who's going to want to talk about these? Bottom line is I want to talk about all of them because they are real questions and real concerns that people have. And I think if you hide them inside, Satan has won. When we share them with one another, and that's why I do a lot of teaching on the 59 one another passages in the New Testament. Hmm. The New Testament emphasizes over and over that we are to be sharing with one another, praying for one another, encouraging one another. We don't do enough of that in the local church, and I'm proposing that not only do we have our hour of worship at church and our hour of Sunday school, but we just have an hour of one another's. 
and that we actually sit and talk to one another and not just have coffee and share donuts, but that we actually talk about the struggles in our life, questions we have, and what the Lord is doing about it. And quite frankly, it should be a gigantic guy talk in the local church. Mm-hmm. Good word. You know, Paul says to the Corinthians that we should know his schemes, the devil's schemes. And I think his schemes are pretty uh, evident in Scripture. He he torments believers, he tempts believers, and he lies. Uh, scripture says that he's the father of lies. When he speaks, he lies. It's his native tongue. But he comes masquerading as an angel of light. Yes. Mm-hmm. And he can take captive and convince even believers of some of his lies. And so that's why we need to know the Word of God so well. That's the truth. Everything that 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 we hear, any teaching that we receive, we want to compare it to the Word of God, just like the Bereans in Acts 17 who search the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I heard once that the Secret Service, who deals with counterfeit money, they first train on understanding real currency and sure. everything about it. So when you know the real, the counterfeit is more easily spotted. Mm-hmm. We need to know the real, the word of God very well so we can spot the counterfeit. Let mm-hmm. me jump on top of that because you're yeah. right, Jeff. Here's the thing. We need to know the collective word of God. It's not just me knowing it alone, and that's we want to know it as best we can individually. But that's where I come to you. And I say, Jeff, I'm I'm thinking about this. I don't know where in the word it talks about this. And Jeff says, Well, that's easy. Go to go to uh, you know Psalm 21 and look at verse five. Or Bill says that we need one another. Yeah, well, so Jeff said all the smart things. Yeah, well, of course. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, thanks. That's why I turn to you, Bill. Well, <laughs> <laughs> all right. But, Here's the question: What is the difference between uh, told that hating your brother is tantamount to murder? But if you don't hate your family, spouse, and yourself, you cannot follow Christ fully. Oh, I love that text. Jeff, go right ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have uh, looked at some people who know the Greek and know the first century a little bit more. And in this discussion, they said when it says you must, it's, it's, it's like when God says Jacob he loved, but Esau he hated. What he's saying is he's, he picked Jacob. It's not that God hated Esau. No. It's that he, he chose him over the other one. In the same way, unless you hate your father, your mother, your brother, I can't remember the exact passage. Your wife, your story, kids. Wife, kids, and yeah. so on. It's basically and yourself. Saying, and yourself. You're supposed to put God above the rest of your family. So a lot of Christians will say this, and it comes natural to us. It's like God family, country. And people say, my priorities are God, then family, then, you know, something else. Um, So God should be number one in your heart. I have a couple I know, a pastor and his wife. They found out about a year and a half ago, their son came home and said, I'm gay. And you better learn to accept it. And you better just love me for who I am. Now, what I see a lot of people do in those circumstances, even though the Bible says no to the gay lifestyle, I see Christians compromising because it's their kids. And they put their kids above the Word of God, above Jesus. What this pastor and his wife did is said to this young man, we will always love you, Mm -hmm. we would die for you, but we will not compromise the truth of Jesus. And what you're doing is wrong, and it will eventually catch up with you. And I give them all the credit in the world because that is what Jesus means by, you know, hating mother, father, sister, brother. Not hate them in the sense you want to get rid of them, but not letting what their behavior does that's anti-biblical determine what you think the Bible says and who Jesus is and abandoning Jesus in the process. And the Bible is also against 
immoral heterosexual behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, let's just not pick on. It is correct. all up and down. And the problem is we don't talk about it in the proper sense enough, like you're talking about, Bill, to help young people especially not get caught up in that. Mm-hmm. Most of my counseling over the years has been with people. Now, they may be now 60, 70, 80 years old, but it was always around those early years and their sexual promiscuity and how that has bugged them and hurt them and carried with them for the rest of their lives, and they don't know what to do about it. And we should be addressing that much earlier. I think the church can learn from those parents that say, we love you, we're always there for you, but we can't approve of that behavior. That's right. All right, we'll take a break. Let me know what your questions are. Text them over, please, 877-933-2484. My power panel is Jeff Burdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish. We'll be right back. We want to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. We're creating encouraging posts every day to help you focus on the important things as you spend time on social media. From graphics that feature Bible verses and quotes from our hosts and show guests, to articles about topics you are interested in, to videos from our hosts. Search Faith Radio on social media sites to connect with us today. Welcome back to the show. This is Guy Talker, guys who talk. Great questions coming in. Jeff Redorn, Tom Parrish on my power panel today. And let me start with this question. Uh, my husband would like to know if there's any information about what happened to Jesus during the time he spent in hell for three days as we speak each week in the Apostles' Creed. So the Apostle Creed basically says that Jesus was... Uh, crucified, dead, buried, descended into hell, and then raised on the third day. I actually think that that hell should more properly, from a Greek perspective, read descended into Hades. Luke 16 is this description of the rich man and Lazarus where they descend into Hades, and there was a good side, and there was a bad side, and in between there was this great chasm so that a person could not go from one side to the other when Jesus said to the thief, today you'll be with me in paradise, I believe the place he was describing was the good side of Hades called comfort or the bosom of Abraham. And that's where the righteous went before the cross. So Jesus died before the cross under the law and would have been a righteous person. So he went to the bosom of Abraham. It doesn't tell us what he did for three days. All scripture tells us is that he preached to those also in prison. Yeah, First Peter. Yeah, and I don't think it's preached like he wanted the other side to get saved because I think death seals the fate of everybody. But he proclaimed to the underworld, to all those who have died, both good and bad, that I am the Christ. I've died for sin. I'm going to rise from this place again in three days. And I think that's the preaching he did. And that's about all we have other than he set the captives free, which I think is representative of him taking all the good side now up to heaven, which is now described by Paul as the paradise of God. You know, the Bible talks about the fact that Jesus came, and in his death and resurrection, he defeated sin, death, and the power of the devil. What we forget is those realms, he went and proclaimed his victory too. 
that Jesus himself, even in those days, whatever those, those three days were exactly, um, he was not, you know, annihilated. He was not burning anywhere. He was there as the conquering king because he had won on the cross and the resurrection then sealed that for eternity for you and me. And so, no, he, I agree with what you're saying, Jeff. There is, uh, we don't have to worry about, you know, hell in that sense. Uh, Jesus was, is king over all of it. You know, you remind me of, of some bad teachings about Jesus going to hell uh, that is taught in, by some on TV and other places that Jesus went to hell and suffered under the torment of Satan for those three days and three nights. And there's uh, several issues with that teaching. Uh, the first one is is what you just described. No, he's the king. Second, it was finished on the cross. His yeah. payment of sin was finished on the cross. And third, Satan is not in hell or Hades. He's in this world. He's the prince of this world and the god of this age. So it's just a bad teaching altogether. But what did Jesus say in the cross? Talitha kumi. It is finished. finished. And that finished means it's over and done, the yep. whole thing. There's nothing more to be added to it. And when you hear that, you have to think of the realms of now, eternity, Hades, paradise, all of it. He's the king overall. Absolutely. There's a question do the Jews believe in the Christian God, except for Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, or is it the Jewish God, not the Christian God? Uh, Jesus is the Jewish God. Yeah, he is. I mean, I think the idea of the triune nature of God is seen in the Old Testament from the very, very beginning. Let us make man in our image uh, so we have this idea of the plurality of God, this three persons of God right away, right in the beginning. Also, the Old Testament prophesies that God would send this Messiah, this Redeemer, uh, who would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. He'd be from the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from the line of Judah, a descendant of David. I mean, there's 90 unique individual prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to this guy coming. God told them, Moses told them, I am going to send you another prophet like me. You shall listen to him. And... Jesus came, he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Uh, so yes, they do believe in the God of the Bible, the Old Testament God of the Bible. They just missed that God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, when you look at the Old Testament, you take all the titles and all the festivals, they're all pointing toward they are. the Messiah. And the Messiah, of course, is Jesus. And that's why I've got that chart at home that has all the names and titles of Jesus on it, you know, Lamb of God, you know, up and down, Lion of the tribe of Judah. The point is that Jesus is the focus of the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And for our, our Jewish brothers and sisters who I dearly love, I just urge them to take a harder look at Jesus because he fulfills the Old Testament completely and he is the revelation of God as we know God in spirit. He is the personification because he is the visible God among us as Jesus himself. Gentlemen, here's a comment that came in. As I understand it, Hades basically means unseen. I'd suggest that Jesus experienced hell during the hours of darkness on the cross. Comment. That was a comment. Well, he, the Bible says, he doesn't use the term hell, but he experienced the sin of the world. He took upon himself the sin. And here's the thing we don't understand. Jesus didn't take only the sin of the people at that time. 
Mm. or the people of the Old Testament. He took your sin and my sin and into the universe and into the future. So in that moment, the Bible says, he became sin for us who knew no sin Mm. so that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if you want to call that hell, that's about as bad as it can get. But the point is, taking on all that sin is something we've never experienced. We can't even begin to comprehend that. But I know people that have shame and guilt in their life, and I'm glad I don't have that for some of the things they've done. Now, multiply that by billions of people, and you can see what Jesus had to deal with. Yeah, hell in in the New Testament is actually the Greek word Gehenna. It was an actual valley just outside the old city of David, where that was a garbage dump, and so uh, and sometimes there was smoldering smoldering fires. Uh, sometimes they dumped bodies there, and so hell in the New Testament is literally a euphemism for a bad place. Jesus was in a bad place, so I actually don't have a problem that he experienced hell on the cross, if you will, because that's just a euphemism for a really bad place. But when he said it is finished. He didn't now need to go to hell and be punished. Correct. He took the punishment on the cross, and when he said, this is it, it was it. Yeah, and the, the point was, the, the two places that Scripture describes, their names are Hades, like we talked about earlier, and then there's the final place called the Lake of Fire. There actually is no place called, quote-unquote, hell or Gehenna in the New Testament. Gehenna is just representative of a terrible place. So when people say war is hell, that that's using the metaphor of Gehenna as describing a bad place. Mm-hmm. My wingman Terry wants to know, speaking of the righteous who died before Christ, could they have gone to the bosom of Abraham by faith alone, or would they also have to perform animal blood sacrifice to absolve their sins? Oh, great question. Uh, Abra- it says scary. of Abraham, that is, that's great, your wingman, a very good question. Man, yep. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. righteousness. Mm-hmm. So I think, I think it's the same faith. The, the works of the law made nothing righteous and can make nothing righteous. Your works cannot make you righteous. And so it's always been by faith. They believed God pointing ahead to the cross. We believe God looking back at the cross, the gospel, and it's, we're saved by the same faith. Mm-hmm. But, the, but here's the thing, and you're absolutely right. Let's add to that. When the Jews went to the temple and sacrificed for the sin, for the atonement, they were doing that by faith. They were saying, this is what the Lord told us to do through Moses. This is what we're going to do. They weren't looking at the lamb's blood as taking away their sin. They looked at it as the Lord looked upon that, and by their faith, they were brought in to the realm of the Lord. All right, we're going to take a break. We're looking for your question. I know you got one, so send it over. It's a text. You can remain anonymous, of course, uh, 877-933-2484. Did you know October is Pastor Appreciation Month? I'm looking at you, Tom Parrish. As you take a big sip of we that, we appreciate Coke. you, Tom. Well, thank you. I yeah. appreciate that. Because pastors have an incredibly hard job. So we're just thanking you, Tom. Thank but you. because October is Pastor Appreciation Month, you can send a note of encouragement and a coffee card to your pastor for free today. All you have to do is uh, sign up at myfaithradio.com. Many people have done that, and your pastor will get a note of encouragement and a coffee card from myfaithradio.com. Check it out. All right. Text your questions over, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back.
It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. Drive time, drive time. Let's get it started. Jump in your car. What's for dinner? It's the afternoon show with Bill Arno. I am back with my power panel for Guy Talk, which means any question you have, send it over. We'll do our very best to answer it. 877-933-2484. The questions are flying in, so let me get to the next one. Since the Lord will come as a thief in the night, one person will be taken and another left. What happens to those not taken? And what happens to the animals depending on our care if we are taken? Lovely question. There's a very loving, compassionate person who doesn't want to be taken and then wonder, who's going to take care of my dog? Uh, are dogs raptured? Maybe dogs are... No. Do That'd pets nice. go to heaven? That'd be nice. No. Yeah. Um, so I think the question refers to the rapture is what they're referring to. So some are going to be taken. Others are going to be left. Remember the rapture, which is described in First Thessalonians 4 and First Corinthians 15 and other places, uh, including John, where he said... I go and prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come back and take you to be where I am also. So some in Christianity have this doctrine of the rapture, that prior to the tribulation period that is to come upon the earth, he will take the church up to heaven with him at the beginning of the, or at some point in the tribulation. There's also different views on the timing of it. And then the church will return with Jesus, the armies following heaven, dressed in fine linens, white and clean, coming back to earth at the end. Uh, so that event is described as the rapture. It's simply a separation of the good with the bad. He actually does another separation of the good and the bad, the wheat and the tares, the sheep mm-hmm. and the goats, when he comes. So that is his great purpose, to separate those who have life from those who don't have life. As far as the dogs, uh, this subject is not mentioned in Scripture. Well, it's, uh, who's going to be taking care of pets? Well, there's going to be someone left on earth, and I, I you know— Will there will someone start taking care of all the, taking care of all the pets that's left behind? Probably someone will. I think the people left behind are not going to perceive to a large degree the difference because they've lived without the Lord. They don't know any different. They're just going to go on living. They just don't know where their neighbors are going to be or what happened to that family or that type of thing. But when we even the unbelievers in the rapture time still do not live without the order of the Lord in the universe. He still provides order, so the sun comes up and the sun goes down. The danger is that if they don't, if we don't know him, we lose him for eternity. Hmm. And that's the real danger of all of this, and that's why we want to be ready before that even comes. All right. Here's another question. Uh, let's see here. Um, do Jewish people get special favor today as they did in Old Testament time? It's interesting because Paul says that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. As you begin to look at that, without Jesus, uh, nobody gets special favor anymore. The book of Hebrews simply says the old covenant is obsolete and going out of use, where the new covenant has come. The new covenant is Jesus himself. If you don't have Jesus, There is no special favor that I know of anywhere in the Bible or in Scripture because we have to bypass Jesus then to get that favor. You come to Jesus, and I have been blessed to see many Jewish men and women come to Jesus. Suddenly, they get the revelation of the truth, and they're living that life that is full and abundant. Mm -hmm. So uh, without Jesus, no. Here's here's the thing, and people get uh, a little uptight about this. When we talk about uh, Jews as being the covenant people, 
the covenant is over, according to Hebrews. That we are now in the new covenant. And the Jews were the first ones invited into the new covenant with Jesus. The Gentiles were invited in after that. If you don't have Jesus, my Jewish friends, you're lost. It's about as best I could say it. And if you don't have Jesus, my Gentile friends, you're lost. Absolutely. I think Romans make it makes it clear that all are under sin, both Jew and Gentile alike. Jesus came for both, both Jew and Gentile. He requires either Jew or Gentile alike to believe in order to be saved. So I believe, uh, just as Tom said, without Christ right now, whether you're Jew or Gentile, uh, it doesn't matter. You are you are lost with Christ. You are still dead in your trespasses and sin. Yeah. But if you believe in Christ as your personal Savior, then you have been given life. You've been given eternal life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Now I will, and you're right. The old covenant has been put aside. The new covenant has come. Hebrews makes that very very clear. Uh, the only thing left for the nation of Israel is, I believe that the remnant of Israel at Jesus' second coming that we were just talking about will be saved and enter into the millennial kingdom. God made a promise to Abraham in, in, in Genesis chapter 12 that you and your descendants after you will possess this land forever. That promise was passed on to Isaac and then to Jacob, who became Israel. And so I believe that at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus returns at his second coming, a remnant of Israel will look upon him who they have pierced, and finally, as a nation, recognize their Messiah and enter into the kingdom. But prior to that moment, if you're Jew or Gentile and you don't believe and you die from the face of this earth, you'll be lost without Jesus Christ, exactly. just as Tom said. And you hit the nail on the head. They will be saved. They're not getting into heaven because they're Jews. We're not getting into heaven because we're Gentiles. We're getting into heaven because of Jesus. Correct. And that's the key for the whole thing. All right, gentlemen, can you please explain how a sinful, dead person can make a decision for Jesus without the Holy Spirit? When something is dead, it can't do anything, right? True. But we have an answer. So, um, Yeah, so th- there are some in Christianity that believe uh, that in what's called total depravity. And total depravity really equates to the total inability to believe, to respond to God's call of salvation and believe it. Uh, I, I don't ascribe to that. I think that dead people who are actually dead spiritually, I think that's the deadness that is described in the Bible. When Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and sins, it's dead because our spirit is dead. We're still able to believe many things. There are many lost people in this world who believe in many gods. Some believe trees are God. Some believe idols are God. Some believe that Yahweh is God and Jesus is his son. We are able to believe many things. In fact, God calls us to believe. It would be very interesting for God to call the world to believe in him if we were not able to believe in him. So I think man is dead in their sins. We have the ability to respond to God's call for faith. Matter of fact, it's interesting because John 3 is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible. It's also one of the most divisive chapters in the Bible because everybody has a different idea what it means to be born again. The bottom line is this. Jesus says to Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you cannot even perceive the kingdom of God. So the gift comes from the Holy Spirit to wake us up. The question is, once we wake up, do we respond with the faith he's given us to follow Jesus or do we not? Now, There's different theological understandings of that, but the bottom line is, 
it's still the Lord working within us and waking us up so that we know we have that need. Because in and of myself, the only need I had before Jesus in my life was me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know I needed Jesus. It is Jesus that I needed, and he's the one who woke me up. Here's where that's true, and I think the picture is when Jesus says in Revelation chapter 3, I stand at the door and knock. He's knocking. That move of the Spirit that you just described, Constantly. I believe is described when Jesus said, I stand at the door of, the, of, the, of every man's heart. And so the question is, for, from this theological debate that's been going on for hundreds of yep. years, by the way, is does he knock on some people's hearts or all people's hearts? And I believe the God that wishes none to perish is knocking on every single person's heart, and we are responsible for opening that door, a picture of faith, and then it says that he will come in and eat with me and they with me, which is a picture of salvation. Absolutely. Well done. You're listening to Guy Talk. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Verdorn. If you have questions, you can text them over, 877-933-2484. An interesting question. I'm reading a book in my book club right now that starts with the line, Affirmation is the purpose of the universe, specifically affirmation of God. Is that biblically correct? I don't remember Jesus saying that. I don't remember the New Testament using the word affirmation. What the New Testament uses is that eternity is in our hearts already, that we have a need for the Lord, even if we don't fully recognize it, and that when we get spiritual awakening, our responsibility is to repent receive what Jesus has done, and now walk with him the rest of our lives. Now, in that, will I affirm the name of Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit? Absolutely. And I actually become a better person because I will affirm you as an individual, because it's not just about me. But no, I don't know anywhere in the Bible where it says affirmation is the number one goal. The one number one goal is to recognize who Jesus is and surrender to him. It's kind of hard to know the context of that line without knowing the rest of the I know. kind of the paragraph or first chapter of that book. But, you know, it's it's many have said that the purpose of man is to know God and to make him known. Um, if, if, affirm, if by affirmation they mean knowing God, uh, well, then I might agree with that. But I have a feeling I don't because what God really calls you to do is to believe in him, to entrust in him for his salvation, not just simply affirm him, you know. About 80% of the people in this country believe there's a God. I, I think they affirm in some way that sure. there's a God. But I don't think 80% of the people in this country are saved or truly born again who've entrusted in Christ and his work on the cross for their salvation. There's the difference. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's see. Lots of good questions coming in. Um, what? Let's see. Every time I start to read the Bible, I, I feel so sleepy. Please help. <laughs> well, you know, it is interesting when you take on a book as big as, as the Bible, you can feel overwhelmed. And sometimes that can probably pour some chemicals in your brain that says, this is a lot. Yeah. And, and I'm getting tired. Well, it's, it's exciting. It's the most exciting book you're going to ever read, though. It doesn't get any better than that. Uh, for most of those people that tell me that, I tell them get an audio recording of the Bible. Because for them, trying to read may have a physical problem with the eyes and they get tired. Mm -hmm. It's also the devil not wanting us to read it. But the bottom line is there are a number of ways to work around that. Here's the other thing. I had a gentleman tell me something like that years ago. And he said, you know, I just open the Bible and I kind of glaze and my eyes just don't focus. What have I got to do? I said, who's your best Christian friend? He says, Bill. 
sits in the front row of church. I said, call Bill, ask him if you and he can get on the phone every night for 10 minutes and read the Bible together and talk about it. And guys, he did it. He actually went and did it, and he became pretty knowledgeable of the Word of God. But the way he was doing it wasn't going to work for him. So for the the writer in who's or texting in, see if somebody can help you. Get an audio version of the Bible. Do whatever you got to do to be able to hear it. I love the audio version. I've, I remember having CDs in my car and mm-hmm. listening to them, um, and it was a British guy, and I loved the way he read oh, the yeah. Scripture. It was very good. Um, try reading in the morning when you wake up. Mm-hmm. Instead of at the end of the day, right before you go to bed. Yeah, great suggestions. What does it mean when Scripture says a man should not sit under the teaching of a woman? I can go to break if you like. No, no, no. We, <laughs> oh, we, look at the time. We, <laughs> we jump, love to jump into that one, Bill. Um, there is a place where he says that, and we have to take that seriously. But here's the problem. We also have to take it seriously with the rest of Scripture and the context in which it's said, because it's real easy to make a dogmatic statement out of that to where women can no longer teach in the church or can't do anything like that, and there are churches who practice that. But there are also churches that practice handling rattlesnakes. Now, that's in the Bible. It's in Mark 16. But we don't practice that. Why? Because we don't have other passages that really clarify it. And it doesn't mean that there isn't a place for what Paul's saying whatever the setting, but we've got to be careful about that and not make it a universal statement without other scripture to back it up. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll take a break. When we come back, lots more guide talk. We still have some great questions that we will address when we return. If you have a question, 877-933-2484. My power panel is Jeff Verdorn and Tom Parrish. We'll be right back. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. Welcome back to the show. You're listening to Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Great questions coming in today. We've got Dr. Marcus Bachman joining me in the second hour. We're going to talk about shame. It's not a topic we're talking about today on Guy Talk, but great questions. Here's another one, Romans 2.12. Having trouble understanding it. Does it mean those before the New Testament were judged under the Old Testament law rather than New Testament salvation through Christ? Tom and I were uh, talking about this a little bit uh, during one of the breaks here today, and, and this is a tough passage, but I I think the key to understanding this is going down a couple more verses to verse 14. Mm-hmm. Verse 12 says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. Um, and it's like, well, so does that mean they didn't break the law, or what, what's the standard that is judging them then as they perish, as they are being going to be condemned? Well, 14 says... Indeed, when the Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. So I think he has God has has told us, and Paul here, that God has set the law as the standard for the Jews, and they can be measured by that. But the Gentile is being 
uh, basically judged by a de facto law, that they are doing what is required to them by the law, by this moral standard, which is written in the hearts of every man, God says. Yeah, and you're exactly right. And here's the good news about this, that if it's written on our hearts, it's a faith enterprise. And even in the Old Testament, Abraham was justified by faith. It is faith through the Old Testament. The law was a very visible way to see their brokenness with the Lord and to come to the Lord in repentance. And so when they would sacrifice the lamb on the Day of Atonement or they do those things, the the person doing it, it wasn't just having the, the lamb slaughtered and the blood spilled. It was putting faith that through this act, the Lord himself would forgive. Hmm. And we, there has to be faith from beginning to end. That's the only way it works that I see. You know, one of the cool things is the fact that mankind, w- whether they believe or not believe in God, uh, throughout the centuries and across continents have all had some kind of moral law. They all believe they that there's some things that are good and th- some things are bad. And the question is, where did that come from? And philosophers over the centuries have said, because we have a moral standard innate with within man, that proves that there must be a moral law giver that has placed that there. Yeah. All right. Here's a question, gentlemen. How do we know if the Holy Spirit is in us? If you can confess Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you have the Holy Spirit. Now, can I resist the Holy Spirit? Sure. When he tells me to forgive somebody or whatever. But the bottom line is, when I sin, do I feel guilty about that? When I sin, do I find that sooner or later i got to go back to the Lord and repent of that? If you can do any of those things, guess what? The Holy Spirit's within you. When the Holy Spirit isn't within someone, they justify what they've done, and they don't need to repent, and they don't need to do those things. So as long as you can confess Jesus as Lord and believe it, you're okay. You know, Romans 8 says, The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. So if you have the Spirit in you, God will speak to you through his spirit. Mm-hmm. And the more in step you are with the spirit, you can be out of step with the spirit. That's why Paul says, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We can quench the spirit. We can turn from the spirit back to the places of the world. But if you're listening to God and if you're listening to the spirit, God will speak to you through his spirit to your spirit that you are his child. Every time. Yep. You're right. What are you looking at me for? <laughs> you have the answers. Wow. <laughs> Got a nice comment from uh, Chris who said, I learned so much from Tom and Jeff, gifted men of God. That's kind. Isn't that nice? Very All nice. right. Here's a question. I don't know if I should take this one because it would open up a very large discussion. And I don't know if we have time for it, but I like the question. And I don't know how to address this one. Some are teaching that hell is not eternal. And the question is, could you talk about that? I don't know if we're ready to have that discussion. I know there's been a couple of different ways of thinking about it. There is is a debate within Christianity by some. The traditional view, obviously, is that when people... Remember, we, we were talking about this earlier. We have to remember there's two places described in Scripture. The first place is called Hades, and that is the holding place for the lost... Uh, until they are going to be judged at the great white throne judgment. After the great white throne judgment, Scripture says that the lost are thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. So that is the final place 
where the lost will be thrown. So death and Hades are thrown into the lake of fire, and it's the second death described in the book of Revelation. Now, the debate is basically is, is, is eternal death in nature or effect? Um, is eternal punishment, eternal punishment, in other words, it's eternal in effect, or is it eternal punishing, in other words, it's a conscious torment for all of eternity? Um, the one is the traditional view that says that it's going to be eternal torment for all of eternity in the lake of fire. The other is what theologians call conditional immortality. Conditional immortality is the idea that our immortality, our eternal life, comes through faith in Jesus Christ, which is what Scripture says. The gift of God to those who believe is eternal life. The idea then goes that those who haven't believed don't have eternal life, and therefore, when they're thrown into the lake of fire, they actually perish, which is actually what John 3.16 says, right? If you take that perish word literally, it says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So there's the gist of that. I think the problem is we it's the opposite end of the question that we should be asking. You know, is hell eternal? The opposite end of that is, was Jesus' sacrifice on the cross really that big of a deal? <laughs> and if it was a big deal for the entire universe, the, the consequences of not coming to Jesus are as big a deal as well. But here's the thing that I, I rest on. The Bible says that our Lord is eminently just and fair. Whatever he wants to do with those that don't believe is up to him. But they will never be able to say, this is unfair, because he will be able to line it up with what Jesus had did had done for them, but they did not take advantage of him going to the cross for their sins. You know, regardless of which position you take, uh, as you said earlier, whatever it is, they're in a heap of trouble. They are big time. And it is, uh, it's the biggest decision someone can make because the lake of fire is for eternity, whether in effect or in duration, it is for eternity. And I want the other side of the promise mm -hmm. of God. And that is to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, to dwell in the new heaven and new, the new earth, to have the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, and to, to Romans, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation 21.3, and God will dwell with his people. That's what I'm going to latch on I had on a to. friend telling me, he says, boy, I can hardly wait to heaven and see how many crowns I get. And my response is, I'm happy if I get in the door, you know, and I'm getting <laughs> in by right. Jesus. That's it. Mm. What book in the Bible... Would you recommend for new for a new believer to read? Tom Parrish, you go first. Well, I I for both unbelievers and new believers, I always push John simply because it gives such a great portrait of Jesus. And I think that's critical. After that, you know, uh, Romans is an incredibly powerful book, and the reason I push Romans is that it teaches a lot about discipleship. And we are called to make disciples. You know, not merely get decisions. I mean, I want people to do that, but to make disciples. And that book lays it out very nicely for doing that. So I would encourage both. And uh, I've told people go back and forth between the two for, you know, quite a while. How about Leviticus? <laughs> There's a good one. And if you want to be confused, it's one that will drive you crazy. It, I just a quick story. I, I still remember the first time that I read through the book of Leviticus. Oh. And I got to the end reading all these laws dietary laws and cleanliness laws and sacrificial laws and all the stuff that the Jews had to do according to the word of God, right? Yeah. And I got done and I said, oh, thank you, Lord, that I live under 
grace. Amen. Mm. What about one of Paul's letters, like Philippians? It's another good kind one. Kind of a nice little short book that you can read. It's got some powerful wisdom in it. And Here's the key I tell everybody when you study the Bible, whether it's that. Mm-hmm. It, you could do any book of the New Testament, and, and a lot in the Old, too. But New Testament gives us much more clarification as to who Jesus is and what he wants. But I always tell people, you've got to go in with the three what's. What does the text actually say? What does that mean? And then what are we going to do with it? Because if we don't get to the third one, what are we going to do with it? You can read Philippians all day long that Jesus, you know, emptied himself. What does that say for me? Well, I'm called to empty myself, too. Well, how do I empty myself when I'm with somebody that's driving me crazy? It's putting on that, and that's that discipleship. It is putting on the nature of Jesus in our behavior, in the way we live, and what we live for. Yeah, John tells uh, especially an unbeliever, who this person of Jesus is and what he taught and what he did and that he rose from the grave. For a new believer in Christ, then Romans is full of some of the core doctrines yep. of the Christian faith. But look, all Scripture is God-breathed. Christian, spend time, spend a lot of time in the New Testament studying all of it. Yeah. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. Have a lovely uh, evening and a good dinner and have a uh, great uh, weekend as well. Thank you, Bill. You too, Bill. It is getting Thank to you. be that time of the week. We're going to take a break. When we come back, Dr. Marcus Bachman will be joining me, and we're going to talk about shame. That's all next. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.